0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another very special Easter edition from the kitchen of Ignite
1: Radio Live. Yes, you are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter in the kitchen over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio for the Almighty. Join us. In going more deeply in this great adventure in your own kitchens and living rooms and wherever you choose at I Love My Family us
0: actually uh, having a great time post Easter with our children before we take them back to the two ones to Hillsdale and a good friend of theirs we've really delighted we had really an awesome Easter um, just surrounded by family and united spiritually with the Trinity I call them Anne Marie Colin, and little baby Magdalena and uh, tonight we got a very special program for you it's Sam Halligan from the men's retreat we talked about that last week and uh, go back and listen because very powerful testimonials of men who participated in that very powerful event, as well as a very uh, impactful homily, um, Ignite Radio Live.com. Again, you can find out more about CYSC Catholic Youth Summer Camp and Damascus at CYSC.com or Damascus.net. But just to kind of fill in some of the front end before we get to Sam Halligan, and really, I think a very powerful talk. The theme was Priest, Prophet, and King. We are all. All called by virtue of baptism to priest to be priest, prophet, and king. His talk was the third of three, and uh, again, we're going to hear that very shortly. But just to kind of fill some front end space here, I think um, a little uh, keeping a little folksy here. I've got my son Joseph, otherwise known as Seth Schleter, with me, and he's had some pretty exciting things going on over throughout the duration of his life. Not the least of which is being in our home, but uh, some things percolating. And he was the worship leader during that. Particular particular. particular weekend retreat. So I'm going to ask him some questions and then we'll get to Sam. But Joseph, what was your experience like leading worship and overall your perspective of these 200 men, most of whom were fathers, some were grandfathers, but you're on the team. You were part of the prayer that prepared for this. And uh, what did you see happen? What was your experience?
1: Yeah, I think it was neat. So I was, I was obviously the worship leader um, running the team. And uh, I think men in particular have this stigma about them, which unfortunately is true. I'd say most of the time, um, that they are don't don't show emotions, that they can't, you know, be expressive, um, and that comes in in sometimes conversation and interactions, but especially I've seen it um, happen in worship before, right? Where. Mm-hmm. Where men, fathers, they, they'll sit there, they'll just kind of observe a wash. Happens in mass, right? Fathers will sit there, observe, maybe participate, maybe even show up. Um but what was really neat was leading these men in worship and giving them permission from day one to be able to hey, like you were made to be expressive. You were made to worship God, not just with your mind, but with your heart, with your emotions, with your hands, with your with your body, with your voices to actually like do these things. And it was so neat that when you when you gave these men that permission and they saw that other men around them were doing it. Then they it was it was one of the most beautiful times of worship that I've seen of, of men just diving in of entering in of of giving their hearts to the Lord and, and encountering Him in that place. I mean, and men men crying men you know having emotional experiences. Not that it's about an emotional experience, but we have a God who gave us our emotions for a reason, and so He speaks to us through them and uses them for His glory. And so uh, to see men come before the Lord to open their hearts in worship, to sing, to express their love of the Lord and their commitment to live for Him. It just really neat.
0: Thank you for that. And just for our listeners, I suspect many of you who are listening are Catholic, and we did not grow up with um, an expressive understanding of worship. Certainly, the Mass is the epicenter, the source and summit of worship. And of course, um, God has given us this tremendous gift to imitate and glorify Him. But we also are called to really have a vision of, of life as worship. Joseph, you've really been captured, captivated by the heart of the Father with that whole insight that all that we do is worship to give God worth to lift him up in glory and just I want to make the point at this event so absolutely I think you have 200 men really running the gamut of those who maybe haven't seen the inside of a church in a long time been a confession for years and to those who are really I might say conservative in terms of their dispositions right you, they may pray no Venus and roses, which are all called to do but very reserved as far as worship but then you had somewhere maybe more familiar with expressive worship so I just want to ask you the question, um, for those who might want to reduce the bodily expression of worship to something that's Father Larry Richards, charismatic, hands in the air, a personality type, and may dismiss entering into that because that's for them, it's not my thing. How do you respond to
1: somebody like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, when people say worship isn't their thing, then it means that that Jesus isn't their thing, essentially, because we are created to worship, and at each and every moment, we're always worshiping something. Um, Oftentimes, though, we're worshiping our own comfort, our own pride, um, or our own, or our opinion of what other people think of us, over what actually ever worshiping Jesus. And it's actually, if you, if you dive into the heart of it, when people say, well, that's not my thing. Well, why? It's because it makes them uncomfortable or because they're not used to it. And so in that sense, when you're letting that, um, when you let that define your worth and you're worshiping that, um, whereas when you let the Lord define your worth, um, and it's not about what other people think or about how uncomfortable you are, then you're actually, then you're giving worship to him. It's supposed to be a sacrifice. That's worship is a sacrifice. The first use of worship in the Bible was Abraham sacrificing Isaac. It's, It's a gift to the Lord. So if it makes you uncomfortable, great. It's not about, um, a certain personality type. It's not about a certain, um, you know, disposition. It's something we're all created for. It says it's a command all throughout scripture to worship the Lord, to lift your hands in praise, to do these things. And when you look even at the Hebrew words for praise, um, I think there's seven Hebrew words for praise and five or six of the seven all involve a very exuberant, um, you know, expression of your, of your voice, of your body. Um, and then there's other, another one that is like more of like a silent type of praise. And I think so often we're so used to that silent one. Um, but we, we dismiss all of the other Mm -hmm. words that are used throughout the Bible that are, we're told to do to praise the Lord in specific ways. So if, if we're not doing that, if we're not actually following what scripture tells us to, then that's not a personality issue. That is a obedience issue.
0: So we have been to many events, father and son sports events, Uh, blessed, right? I mean, I was given the gift of tickets when we lived in Erie, Pennsylvania. We went to some Pittsburgh Pirates games, never quite made it to a Steelers game, went to a Cleveland Indians game. We've been to some, uh, John Paul and I went to an Ohio State game, gifted some tickets. We've been to some high school, college basketball games. And let's face it, when we have teams, you see a whole arena of people expressing emotion, right? They're really into it. Is it a fair... Fair critique, or maybe I don't like that word critique. Is it a fair insight or consideration that we will express excitement or enthusiasm for so many other things other than God? And that maybe is a challenge for us to consider. Is God in our hearts? Is that a fair consideration? And if so, really the deeper consideration is is that, you know, is it possible to have that kind of delight, that kind of joy in Christ that moves us to have a kind of regard in moments of our life, not nonstop, but moments of our life of a jubilation, if you will?
1: Yeah, I think there's two parts. One is... um One is the fact that, yeah, we we should be called to to give our hearts to the Lord in the same way we would for a sports event or something. We can get so easy and excited and out of our boxes for these these events or these exciting activities in our life. And we don't for the Lord. And again, for different reasons, listed pride, what people think, et cetera, et cetera. Part of it, though, on the other side is that um, we respond to things that genuinely move our hearts. Mm. Um, when something like you don't have to force someone to respond to someone scoring a touchdown if they're genuinely excited about it Mm. and I think the deeper problem isn't um, I think the deeper problem is that we haven't allowed our hearts to be genuinely moved for the Lord Mm. and for so many people that's yes, it's their, it's, it's their fault, but also it's, it's because they've never been shown that they've never been told that, um, that we've, we've had, you know, leaders in our church or in, in communities or whatever that have taught all the things about God, but not actually led people into an encounter with the joy of him. And then we wonder why nobody's responding or excited or anything. It's like, cause we're not giving them anything to be excited about. If we're not actually sharing with them, like what the gospel means, like the joy of it, like the, the power of it, the way it actually transforms our lives. And then we wonder, oh, why aren't they excited? It's because they have no idea what's even going on we can't like tell them to be excited about we like try to force a reaction out of them that we've never given them a reason to react to so the great gift of encounter, right? The, the whole gift of Easter that Christ
0: took on flesh and blood, made himself present to us. And gosh, if we could deeply reflect on um, the gift of him taking on our sin, I was really blessed over the the past week, two weeks in particular, to be listening to the likes of Peter Herbeck and Ralph Martin, who really did deep dives and kind of draw, drew me back to that place of that first love and recognition that this is what our Savior does. God who restores us to himself and we've got the grace flowing from the sacraments, but a challenge to me, am I really attuned and absorbing the great gift of the sacraments? I think that theme was really punctuated. It was a thoroughly Catholic weekend, this Damascus retreat called Anointed, and I think it was a thoroughly um, Catholic in the sense that you had the sacraments, you had um, definite regard for the saints um, and the various speakers. You had time for silence and prayer. You know, it was kind of fun, actually, and I wonder what your thoughts were on this for those who are listening, I liked in respect the fact that at the end, you know, so you had these really robust um, meet, meets meaningful messagings and uh, small group conversations. And of course, the sacraments at the end of the day, um, we had some man time. <laughs> we had a bourbon. There was whiskey bourbon. There were some cigars, uh, a little bit of poker the second night. The first night, I don't think that went down. But, you know, what was the thinking behind those aspects of these weekend events as
1: part of a full picture, if you will, this personal labor retreat. What, what was the reason behind that? Um, so I didn't do any of the planning, but I would I would guess just from from mentalities we've brought in other retreats. The goal is, is really to, to capture a lived experience as well. So I think a lot of times people, when they come to the faith or when they encounter Jesus in a deeper way, they think it means they have to give up all the things that they love to do. You know, all they have to give up, you know, hanging out, smoking a cigar with their friends or, you know, a, a glass of bourbon, like with with some of the some of the bros, you know. And I think it's just like, hey, no, you actually can have good, authentic community with Jesus like and it actually is is elevated by Jesus being at the center of it so when when those things happen I think it's us showing these men that like hey you can have fun and still love Jesus you know like that they're not mutually exclusive but it's actually that in loving Jesus that these things actually carry more of a joy in them I think for often I think oftentimes men the drinking or the smoking or the whatever it might be becomes the the means and the end in a sense it's like well what's the point of it it's like well Uh, To feel good or to to smoke a cigar is the only point. Whereas when the point becomes engaging in brotherly conversation and encounter and discussing what what life and what happened that night with the Lord or whatever, it just is a way to to, um, baptize culture, I guess. It's awesome. So the authentic faith,
0: really, that Christ gave the word becoming flesh, almost the line between the sacred and the secular is obliterated, isn't it? That, that all that we do um, that is in alignment with the good and the beautiful and the true, including bro time, as you say, having good beverages, again, presuming not abuse and that sort of thing. But just the, the way the good things that God gives us in the right balance are occasions of participating in
1: worship. Well, because, I mean, again, we are created to worship. So at all times we're worshiping something. And um, that means that no matter what we're doing, it can be an occasion for worship. So you doing the dishes can be worship. And you um, cleaning your room or going on a drive or um, having a conversation. Like, worship is not restricted to um, mass. It's not restricted to um, a powerful event. It's not restricted to any of these things. It's meant to be a lifestyle that you carry in um, because again, if worship is a sacrifice, then, then the way you view it, right, this, this um, retreat was priest, prophet, and king. And the first of those is priest. That a priest offers sacrifices. And because we are baptized into the priestly identity of Jesus, then we actually are able to share in offering sacrifices. So you doing that thing you don't want to do, you can offer that up as a sacrifice mm. to the Lord. And that is a gift to Him. And it's you stepping into your priestly identity. And He uses that to pour out more grace into a situation. You stepping into a hard conversation, or, um, you know, whatever it might look like. It's it's you offering sacrifice as a priest and, and baptizing again, no matter what you're doing. I love that. You're tuning to Ignite Radio Live over the five mighty stations of Annunciation
0: Radio. We are into Easter, folks. He has risen. And are we not a people after the last couple of years, maybe coming out of the desert, that Luke 4, right? Entering into the desert and uh, you know being deprived and challenged and struggling in darkness. And do we not need to reclaim Christ's power in the resurrection in this moment in our lives, regardless of the circumstances around us? I'd say the answer to that is yes. And uh, we're with Joseph Schleter, my son. He led worship is very instrumental, pardon the pun, with Damascus worship. They led worship for this particular weekend, and in fact, are leading worship in many places throughout the country, and uh, some exciting things coming up. In just a moment, we are going to hear Sam Halligan's very, I think, insightful, challenging, engaging message on King. The nights prior, we had heard on Priest and Prophet, delivered by Aaron Richards and Dan demite the two Grand Pubas leading Damascus Again, you can find out more at damascus.net. But uh, Joseph, set up for us, you know, Sam Halligan, uh, better than us. And you were there that night, led worship before and after. You know, just maybe set up this talk. Sam Halligan, tell us a little bit about him and uh, what to expect.
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, leading up to it, right, we had a night on priest priestly identity, which again is is our ability to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Um, next talk was about being a prophet um, who is someone, a prophet is someone who hears God and speaks him. And as, as men, we are all challenged. And as, as Christians, I'm challenging everyone um, that we are actually made to hear the voice of God and to speak it to people, whether that be our family members, whether that be um, the random you know, person at the gas station, like we're called to hear God's voice and to speak it. Um, and then finally, King is, is stepping into our authority. Um, so Sam is someone that I lived with for a year. I've known for a while. Um, he's an incredible man of God who, who's just pursued the Lord. He has a beautiful wife and kid. Um, and I've just seen the way he's, he was the first person in our in our ministry to be sent really um, to a new location to, to build something. So he was sent to uh, Minnesota to begin our to run our, our Damascus um, things out there, to run a CYSE, to run our mission hub, to run all these different things. So um, in order to go to a new place, you really have to be aware of your identity um, and your authority. And he just carries that really, really well. And it's, it's a talk that just is all about what it means to actually live as a king, to, to step into what we are created for and to use, use what God has given us to change the world. Thank you so much,
0: Joseph, for your time. With no further ado, Sam Halligan.
2: I'm excited to be with you guys tonight. Who's excited to be here? Come on. Yeah. Men's retreats. Love, love being with the boys um I, so I've been working with Damascus for uh about the past five years, and my wife and I just moved to Minnesota. Is anybody out there from Minnesota? Yes, sir, come on, okay, I knew Jack was oh, only those uh, so I now assimilate as Minnesotan, and uh in Minnesota we just say we say things weird, you know we say like bars, uh bars are like brownies, and uh. Scotcheroos—that's the thing that you get. Yeah, um, we say things like "you betcha," and uh, going, going—we're going out. We're going out on the boat, and uh, I've actually noticed that by myself that my A's and my O's are actually getting a little bit more elongated. And I'm owning it because I'm Minnesotan now. Okay, um, but before I was Minnesotan, uh, I lived here in Ohio for uh, almost five years. And it's funny because so I served with the missionary program. I did the two-year missionary program, been on mission staff for the past several years. And being back on campus is always amazing, especially over this past year of being away from this place. I have just such a love and a profound uh, admiration for what God has done in my own life. But, I mean, the thousands and thousands and thousands of kids that I've seen come through here between retreats and summer camp, many of whom are probably some of your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren. Like, I was walking around this, this site today and I was just reminded of like uh, interpretive hike was, was one of the things we do with our, our sixth grade faith and science retreats, right? And I'm walking around the site and I was reminded how I was actually, so one of my big responsibilities was I was the, I was the MC for the sixth grade faith and science retreat, <laughs> pretty big deal, right? And uh, so I was just remi- remembering this one instance, my second year mission. Uh, during my second year mission, I was engaged. I uh, got married to my high school sweetheart. Um, so Whitney and I, uh, were engaged in, we we're going through this time of like marriage prep, right? And so I got marriage on the brain. I'm excited about it. It's, it's awesome. And I'm also, so I'm hot off this marriage prep night. I go into this faith and science retreat and <laughs> during, during the interpretive hike, there's this principle we have called LNT, um, which means leave no trace. And during the opening, Part of the retreat, you come out and you introduce, hey kids, like during our high adventure learning rounds, we're gonna go out and we're gonna do the interpretive hike. And there's a scene called LNT. And I usually got them to chant like, LNT, LNT. And during that particular retreat, I come out there and goes, go, guys, we're gonna go on this interpretive hike. Everyone repeat it with me. NFP, NFP, <laughs> NFP. And then uh, I'm looking around at the rest of the missionaries and they're all just like. And I was like, meh. L N T the the kids came up to me and was like, why'd you say NFP? And I was like, it's Latin. No, no sphoctum plantes. It means we made plants. I don't know. Um, but like I I love NFP. Anybody out there? NFP? Come on. All right. Love being a husband. I love my wife. Like I love my wife. And I love my son. I've got a son. And he's awesome, and I just love being a father. And like, what what's kind of amazing about all that is, it's just you get to be a man when you do those things, right? Like, to be a husband, you have to be a man. To be a father, you have to be a man. I just love being a man. Anybody else out there love being a man? Okay, good. Well, can I actually get like the uh, the home improvement like Tim Allen grunts if you like being a man? Like, oh, 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 oh. yeah, love being a man, and particularly uh, I just think it's incredible opportunity and invitation from God into his own, uh, to relate to Jesus in a way that our sisters in Christ can't, right? I saw a couple guys walking around with some of the chosen uh, gear on. Is anybody like the chosen? Seen the chosen? Okay. I love the chosen and I love it so much because of this reason that Peter, James, John, all these guys go from being stained glass windows or like uh, sacred art that I see in in pictures to becoming real people with real personalities, with real issues, right? And I I can resonate with them now, right? And there's this reality, for me at least, that I like, I can relate to those apostles more because I see their masculinity. I see what makes them tick. I see what makes them excited. I can relate to Jesus in a deeper way because I see uh, that amazing representation of Jesus there. And I just love, I love that reality because we as men can, in a very particular way, relate to Jesus' priesthood, his prophetic office, and his kingly identity in a way that our sisters in Christ can't. I think it's amazing too, just like the the idea of kingship. I mean, what what little boy did not grow up wanting to be a king, right? Like for me, I I was looking back just remembering my own childhood and how much I loved like having like a sword. And I actually got my sword taken away many times because I like hit my little brother with it several times. Right, and I just, I wanted to be a part of that though. I wanted to be a part of the battle. I wanted to rescue the beauty. I was going down to print something down at our office this afternoon and I saw Aaron's son Diggory out there just beating the crap out of a bush with a sword. And I was like, yeah, Diggory. Like, yes, that is exactly what a 12 year old boy should be doing. And it awoken this thing in my heart of like, man, when I was young, I loved the idea of being a king. I loved the idea of going on an adventure, of having a battle to fight, of having a beauty to win, of being able to engage my masculine heart in a way where so often the world tells you that's bad, that's toxic, right? No, that's not toxic. We were made in the image and likeness of a warrior God. We were made in the image and likeness of a God who's a priest, who's a prophet, and who's a king. We should never, ever, ever, ever have to apologize for stepping into that, right? Now, here's the thing, is that that love of kings to be honest, it hasn't gone away, right? Anybody a Lord of the Rings fan out there? Come on. So back in January, I, r- I really stink at um New year's resolutions historically until this year. This was the year. And so I made this goal of like I'm gonna read fifty books. Yeah, that's ambitious, right? <laughs> like I, I hadn't read a book in like three years, and then I'm like I'm gonna read fifty books. <laughs> well, no kidding, it is. Uh, April 2nd, and I have read 25 books since January 1st, right? And uh, one of the books that I really tackled during the month of uh, March was The Lord of the Rings. So I read The Fellowship, The Two Towers, The Return of the King. Oh, I did actually only have one book. It was like the 50th anniversary collector's collectors. It was really cool. I'm not a Tolkienite, okay? I just read the books. All right? Don't <laughs> shoot me. So here's the thing is I'm reading these books, right? And then uh, if you guys ever wanna just have a really cool uh, analogy, look at Frodo, Gandalf, and Aragorn. Like Frodo is the priest. He's carrying the ring up Mount Doom as a sacrifice, right? Gandalf is the prophet. He's the one speaking the wisdom. He's got the plan. He's got the insight. You got Aragorn, who's the king, right? And I was just so blown away by specifically Aragorn in the story of the Lord of the Rings. Like seeing this transformation of this man who in the fellowship of the ring is for all intents and purposes kind of a timid and fearful man. Why? Because of his past, right? Because of, because of the strength of men failing with a Zildor and, and the sword being broken and taking the power of the ring for itself. You see this transformation of this man, Aragorn, from the fellowship of the ring through the two towers and into the return of the king. And you know he, he steps into his kingly identity, and it's there that he beats on the gates of, of Mordor and tries his best to step into that, that identity to help bring a victory to Middle-earth. And there's a specific moment that just blew me away, and it's actually in The Return of the King where, where uh, Elrond, who's this elf king, brings this sword, right? It's the sword that, that actually killed uh, Sauron initially, right? And it's in this moment where Elrond looks at Aragorn and says, put aside the ranger and become who you were created to be. Put aside the ranger and become who you were created to be. And I believe that that's actually a word for us on this retreat. That many of us have preferred to stay the ranger when God is actually calling us to become the king. And that's the invitation tonight is, put aside the ranger and become the king that you were created to be. Become the king. Become the king become the king. You know, when you look at Old Testament uh, and biblical anointing, um, especially the anointing of kings, it can get, uh, it doesn't necessarily line up with our context of anointing sometimes. So every sacrament, most sacraments, we receive an anointing, right? When you're baptized, you receive chrism oil. Uh, At confirmation, you receive chrism oil. Holy orders, uh, men receive chrism oil. And it's amazing because uh, I don't know if it like accurately represents like the the grandness of how powerful this is. Does anybody love just like when things go over the top? I'm like a big, big guy with over the top things when things are kind of full send. Has anybody ever seen an Eastern Rite baptism before? Okay, Ryan, do we have that video? Check how intense this is. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that was the most intense nine seconds of my day. I am, like, trying to convince my wife that, like, when we have our next child, that we need to baptize him in the Eastern Rite because I want that so bad. But there's something that's so cool about that, right? That, I mean, I don't get me wrong. Like, it's amazing what happens at baptism, right? Like, it's efficacious. There's something that happens there. But how much cooler would it have been if I saw my six-week-old baby go, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. whoosh, whoosh. And there's just such a a profundity to that. And and the same thing with anointing, actually. And so I wanted to demonstrate kind of the gap of of anointing and what we're missing here. So I've actually got this amazing missionary. His name is David. Let's uh, welcome up for David. He's going to come on out here. Yes. All right. So, uh, David, uh, you know, there's this king in, in the Old Testament. His name is David, right? And there's this guy who's a prophet. His name is Samuel. Samuel. David. And uh, and what happens in the Old Testament is it actually says, and we'll get into this in a bit, is that Samuel takes a horn of oil and and pours it on. And it's like, okay, that's not like, don't get me wrong. Like we just don't have that context. And so uh, a horn of oil was about 36 ounces of oil. Okay. And I just figured just to show us like, what is the power of this? We should just do it. Right. So here we go. Let's give it up for David. Okay. So, first off, he's going to have to take a shower after this and use a lot of shampoo. And Secondly, this is intense. Is this a little different than your normal baptism? Maybe your normal confirmation? I wish this happened in my confirmation. Let's give it up for David. He's going to get a towel, I think, and get him out of here. So the thing that I want to drive home here is this, is that to be anointed literally means to be drenched in oil. Like in the anointed one was someone who was the oily one, right? If you were to come up here where I'm standing, you would see tracks of oil walking out the curtains. You would see oil on my boots. I'm kind of sad about, but I, I live a detached life, okay? You would understand this, that the context is this, is that there is something very powerful happening in this moment that that man has changed. He's covered. You can't ignore that, right? And I think uh, to just think about this for a second is that when we are anointed, it's not our choice. It's actually God's choice. God chooses us. Right through our baptism, through our baptismal anointing, we are chosen. We are taken from darkness and brought into the light. We are brought from the, the, the prince of darkness and into the kingdom of light. That there is a change in our soul. I mean, uh, Dan talked about it last night. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. You have been chosen. And there's something very powerful that happens when a man is made a king in the Old Testament. That there is a change that happens in who he is. He is now able to operate with God's power and with God's authority. As a king, we are able to operate with God's power and God's authority. Kind of what like what Noah is saying at the beginning is, what if we were to look through our life and no longer try to muster up our own power? we try to live out of our own authority, but realize that through our baptism, we have been given the power of Christ. We've been given the authority of Christ. That it's actually this, I mean, it's insane to think about the word power. It's this Greek word dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite. It's an explosive power that is given to us. And that's the truth is that when we have been made priests, prophets, and kings, we have been anointed by Jesus to live differently. I want to look at David for just a second. He's going to be kind of our central figure throughout this time tonight. You know, you guys know the story of David being anointed as king a little bit, right? Where uh, Samuel is told by the Lord to go and to provide himself a king, and this is what this is what the scripture says in First Samuel chapter sixteen. So when they came, he looked at Elab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height of stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I want to draw on something here for a second. That, that, that oftentimes we can actually count ourselves out of living as a king or living in power and authority because we don't see what God sees or we believe what others have said about us as opposed to seeing what God sees. But what happens when God speaks something powerful here? Samuel comes into agreement with what, what God is seeing and says says something to, to Jesse. Those are all your sons here. And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and fetch him for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him. Now he was a ruddy youth and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day. You see, the differentiating factor of David between probably many of us that we've lived in our lives is that David knew that he was God's chosen one. He knew that he was anointed by God. He knew that he was chosen. You see, there's these three kind of things that I want to say that, that David knew. There was a personal experience with this anointing, right? The Greeks had this word uh, for a personal knowledge, an experiential knowledge. It's called gnosko. Right? It's, a, it's a type of knowledge that's not just something that you can, you can riddle off a bunch of facts or figures or numbers, but it's something that happens to you. And so in this moment, David has 36 ounces of oil poured on his head. And it's in that place that he has a personal experience that happens to his life. And from that personal experience, it becomes pervasive. It infiltrates every single aspect of David's life. You see this when he's a shepherd, that that anointing power comes into, his, into the time that he's a shepherd, that that anointing power comes in the time when he's a warrior, that that anointing power comes in the time when he's a king. It infiltrates and is pervasive in every single aspect of David's life. And from that place of being personal and pervasive, it becomes permanent no matter how high David's life is or how low he is when he's on the mountain or when he's in the valley, that remains constant, that he has been chosen by God, he is anointed by him to operate in power and to operate in authority as a king. And I think that's the difference is, is do we understand that? Do we realize that all too often, if you're like me, we, our personal experiences, I have no part to play in the story. There's no great adventure for me. I have nothing to add to this kingdom of God that I hear so often about. That we're just a a passive bystander to history and the world is just happening to us. But that's not the truth. The truth is, is that we have been anointed by Jesus to be kings in the world, which means that we've been given the power and the authority to influence the world. And that's the heritage of David. You know, uh, Jesus He's is, is prophesied as the, the Davidic king. Like he's, he's the new Davidic king. And so in order to look at like what does David give us? What does Jesus live from, from that, that genealogy in his life? I mean, there's a deep heritage in David that I think we want to unlock tonight. There are two primary things that David, that David shows us as being a king. You ready for him? The first one is this, is a king conquers the enemy. And secondly, a king advances the kingdom. They conquer the enemy and they advance the kingdom. I mean, think about conquering the enemy. I mean, David had so many different things in his life where uh, danger or, or threat or, or, or war. I mean, I, I think about these different kind of stages in David's life, even from the time that it was written in his life from the time he was very young as a shepherd. I mean, think about the enemies that he would have been dealing with there, like Wolves. I don't know if you know this about shepherds in the time uh, in ancient Israel, but there was this, this gate and this pen where basically all the sheep would kind of stay in for the, for the night. That was kind of their, their uh, bunk beds, right? And during the day, they would come out and graze. And the shepherd would lead them back into the sheep gate at night. But there was always this threat of wolves. There was always this threat of um, outside predators coming in. And so what would the shepherd do? It was common practice that the shepherd would actually sleep in the the gate, like sleep between the sheep and the predator, sleep between the sheep and the enemy. And so basically saying, if you want to get to my sheep, then you have to go through me. Like this same idea of conquering the enemy if they were to come in was written on David's life from the time he was very young to the time that he becomes a warrior when he encounters Goliath. I mean, you guys know the story of David and Goliath. Like David is basically like, who is this uncircumcised Gentile? Like, I will take him down. I will feed his flesh to the birds of the air. Like, I mean, Goliath pisses David off. And it's in that place that basically he takes down an enemy of Israel. He takes down an enemy of Yahweh. He steps into his kingly identity even when he's not the king. He's in charge even when he's not leading. You understand? He, he understands the framework of a man is to be able to give his strength to be give his power, to give his authority to serve. So he knew that as a warrior and he knew that as a king. I mean, David advances the kingdom. The things that were promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob begin to be fulfilled in David. I mean, Mo- Moses' promise of a promised land where it would be one flowing with milk and honey begins to, to actually like happen temporally with David in the Davidic kingdom. He starts knocking off all of Israel's uh, enemies. Like, he takes down the Philistines. He takes down the Jebusites. He takes down the Amorites. He takes down the Moabites. He takes down a lot of ites, you know? And what does he do? He actually takes the encampment of Israel, and, and the one that I mentioned, the Jeb, the, Jez, the Jebusites, try saying that 10 times fast, he actually overtook their, their city, which was Jerusalem. So he took Jerusalem, like he besieged Jerusalem. And it was in that place that he established it as God's, like the the capital city, if you will. And it was in that place that he he, he actually established a place of worship for God. He brought in the Ark of the Covenant and it was in that place, Jerusalem, meaning the city of peace. David established himself as the king of peace. And it's in that place where, I mean, he wasn't afraid that he wasn't afraid of looking silly before those who followed him. I mean, he gets before all of the people and he strips buck naked and he worships God. I mean, that's, that's insane to think about. He conquers the enemy. He advances the kingdom. He won battle after battle and advanced, and advanced God's vision. But here's the thing is that we can actually choose not to cooperate with with the anointing that God gives us. We can actually reject or we can actually not agree with what God has given us through our baptism. I don't know if you know this, but uh, we actually, we have to cooperate with God's will, right? He's not gonna force us to do anything. He's not gonna strong arm us into to doing his will. He needs our cooperation. So here's the thing is that basically David, who got you know a bunch of corn oil poured all over him. It wasn't olive oil, it was corn oil. He had a choice to basically to walk on. Or if he wanted, I mean, imagine what would have happened if he just was anointed and and then just completely forgot what had happened to him. It's like what Paul talks about where it's insane. A man who looks in the mirror and walks away forgetting what he looked like. We have an opportunity to either come into agreement with or to disagree with what God has done in our life. We have choices. And every single day, our choices lead us closer to God or further away from him. Every single person makes roughly 35,000 decisions a day. And we have the opportunity to choose God. Am I going to cooperate with your plan for anointing my life or am I going to reject it? And I don't know if it's act- as, uh, maybe as active or even as, as harsh as that sounds, but there's really no line Right, we can't say I'm going to sit on the fence, because here's, I mean, there's no fence with God. Right, the devil kind of owns the fence. You're either in or you're out. We choose, if we want to, stay the ranger, or become the king that we were created to be. We have a choice in that matter. You know, David. David shows us that that's actually possible to disagree with what God. God designs for our life. You know, he won battle after battle, war after war. But after a few years, we find David hanging out on a balcony, looking at another man's wife and trying to invite her into his room to take advantage of her, right? And you guys know this story, right? It's uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, in the spring of the year, The time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. Let me ask you a question. Was David a king? Where was David supposed to be? Yeah, David was a king, and he's hanging out on the balcony. In the spring of the year, In the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So here's the deal, guys, is that we were born in a battle. We were born into a war. We were born for war. We were born to be victorious in war. A man's identity is most deeply found when we are waging war on the enemy. Do you understand that? In First John, chapter three verse eight, it actually says that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil, that it is actually us partaking in the kingly nature of Jesus to destroy hell, to destroy the enemy, to destroy the devil. Like that is a part of our very nature as a kingly call, is to, to actually do battle, but so often, we find ourselves doing what David did. What does David do in this moment when he is hanging out, basically saying, oh, I'll sit this one out. You You guys can go on and fight the Amorites. I'll hang out here. When David's hanging out on this balcony, he is effectively spiritually abdicating his kingly authority. He's abdicating the power and the authority that God had given him, that he had anointed him with. There's this reality that we were born in a war, we were born for war, and we were born to be victorious in war. But we have a choice. You know, actually, it sounds so oxymoronical, but the safest place for David was actually on the battlefield. Like the safest place in the world for him to be, to safeguard the call that he had for his life, was to be linked arm in arm with the men that he sent out to battle. That was the safest place for for David to be. Why? Because he was born for a war. He was born in a war and he was born to be victorious in that war. That is actually in our identity that we find ourselves through a sincere gift of ourselves. You know what? Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe this weekend you feel like you came in here and on a balcony. And that's actually nothing to be ashamed of. Because here's the truth is that you can get in the game if you feel like you've been hanging out on the bench and just watching the other people play or or do the thing, you have the opportunity to get off the bench, to get in the game, to get out of the balcony and to get on the battlefield. There's an option for us this weekend. If we want to put aside the ranger and become the king that we were created to be, we have the opportunity to say, God, I accept the anointing that you've given me. I come into agreement with the priestly, the prophetic, the kingly identity you have given me. I will operate with your power, your authority. I will give my life in service for you. I'll get into the war. I'll get into the battle. And I think think it should be comforting for us to know that anointing does not equal perfection. David was by no means perfect. But earlier I spoke about that, that reality that there was a personal truth that became pervasive and from that became permanent. That David knew that he knew that he knew that he was God's anointed, he was God's chosen. So even when he woke up the next day after having taken advantage of Bathsheba, you know, he goes through this place of repentance and mourning and in this place of of conversion, but he knows at the end of the day that he has been anointed by God and been chosen by God. That there's nothing that comes against the Lord's anointed that can shake him. That heritage of David, of showing us that kings are called to conquer the enemy and advance the kingdom is our inheritance. That heritage of conquering the enemy and advancing the kingdom is our inheritance. That that is actually what we are called to receive and to live as men. How many of you guys know that a father's decision impacts his children? You actually see that in David's life, that David's uh, personal defects influence Solomon, right? And you see that that, those issues that were from David to Solomon get magnified in Solomon's life, and then they get passed down from king to king to king to king, and division begins to spread throughout the Davidic kingly line. And to this point, where basically, generation after generation after generation of these kings begin to begin to be, become less and less in line with what God desired for His kingdom, for His people, for His chosen people there's actually um, this one last king that I want to kind of hone in on. His name is King Josiah. And Josiah was this, he was 16 kings removed from David. And when when Josiah was anointed king, he was actually eight years old. Like he wasn't a very old man. He came to power very, very young. When he's eight years old, he became king of Israel. And every king for the past several kings had fallen away from what God desired for His people, they began to, uh, idolat- idolatrous worship. They began to pursue the, the kings and the, the gods of other, other religions. And Josiah, when he was 26 years old, basically was advised by uh, some of his some of the people in his cabinet of of kind of renovating the temple. And he was in that place of renovating the temple that he receives something he has never seen his entire life. He receives the book of the law. He receives the book of Deuteronomy. And he gives it to one of the people to read to him. And as he's hearing the law of Deuteronomy be read to him, he rends his garments. He cries and he mourns and he weeps because he realizes how unfaithful the people of God had been to God. And Josiah made a point right there. He gathered all the people of Israel and he had the book of Deuteronomy read to them and basically said, all of us are becoming obedient to this. Josiah was known as a king of being faithful, of being a warrior, of being a man who who united Israel under the common love and worship of God. He went out to those high places, to those those places of worship, of idolatrous worship, and he tore them down. He took down the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Jebusites, he took down these foreign gods and he crushed them and said, There is one God to worship, and his name is Yahweh. And he was in that place that, that Josiah said that he was gonna be a man of obedience to God, a man who was gonna worship God, a man who was gonna be filled with fidelity toward God it's amazing because Josiah did not live a very long life. He was anointed at eight years old and he died when he was 36 years old. You know where Josiah died? On the battlefield. Josiah died doing what a king should do. Why do I share that? There's this saying in the church that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Basically, when someone who believes so firmly in God's plans and purposes dies and gives their life, that fruit comes from it. You see, David had an ideal. He had a relationship with God. But there was a gap between David and Josiah, and Josiah saw the need. He saw how far the people of God had fallen from the call. And he stepped into the gap and said, I'm going to be the king that God created me to be. I'm going to be the king that I've been anointed to be. I'm going to live with power and authority. I'm going to live conquering the enemies of Israel. I'm going to advance the kingdom of God. That is what we are being invited to step into. We are being invited to step into that kingship, that same perspective. Because guys, here's the thing, as you know this, is that the world is kind of screwed up. You understand that there is false teaching and false uh, ideologies and all this crap in the media and all this stuff happening in our kids' schools and in society, and it's heartbreaking. And oftentimes we can feel like we're just powerless bystanders to history, that the world is happening to us, and believe instead of believing that God has armed us to influence culture, to go to our spheres of influence of our families, of our children, of our churches of our workplaces. God has anointed you. He has anointed you as a king to go to those places of influence and to claim them for Christ, to claim your very life for Christ, to conquer the enemy in your life, to attack the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to say, no, Satan, you are not going to have control over my life. I'm not going to allow this addiction, this habit, this way of of thinking or this way of speaking to rule my life anymore. Why? Because you've been anointed as a king and with that kingship, you now have authority over your very life. Do you understand that? The devil can't make you do anything. He can't make you do anything. So many of us are sitting on the sidelines thinking the devil's making us do all this stuff. But the truth is, is you have the authority to say to him, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you and I sideline you. You will not have authority over my life. You will, not have, you will not have influence over my life. I claim my life for Christ. You conquer that enemy. You advance the kingdom in your family. Do you realize your power, fathers? Do you realize your power, sons of God? Every single night, every single night, I pick up my two-year-old son, and I hold him. And I look at him because the reality is this, is he's never been with the world before. He's never known the hurts I've had you endure. He's never known the addictions. He's never known the habitual sin. He's never known the world. And through my kingly authority over my son, I can bless him. And I can say, I claim you for Christ. You have that authority. You have the authority over your wife over your children, over your home to say, I claim for Christ. Brothers, there was something that shifted in my life when I became a dad. When I became a dad, I realized that there was someone outside of me that really needed my strength. I saw someone who was helpless, someone who is in need, like they're going to sit in their own poop if I don't help them. Like babies are so helpless and and that's the truth is that, that seeing that called something out of me. It spoke to the very nature of being a man. It was as if God was saying there is someone who desperately needs you and it was from that place of need that I had extreme ownership over my life and the life of my family. And I believe that is what God wants you to see is is to take the blinders off and to just say, God, I'm no longer going to be distracted by these things. I'm not gonna be distracted by the state of the world. I'm not gonna be distracted by the economy. I'm not gonna be distracted by all of these things that are calling for my attention. There are those who need me, who need my strength. Your family, the church, and the world need you. You were born in a war. You were born for war and you were born to be victorious in war. Men, that's the call. That's the call. And I want to link arms with you and I want to step into that this weekend. (laughs) That God has that anointing for us, but it's up to us. Are we going to come into agreement with the anointing God has given us or are we going to hang out on the balcony? And I would suggest that if you wanna be fully alive to get your butt off the balcony and get in the game, let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for the gift, the privilege to be called into service of the King, to be one who can fight with your strength, with your power, with your authority. Lord God, we pray that tonight, we would come with hungry hearts to get off the balcony and to get into the battle. Lord, I pray that whatever happens tonight, that we would become expecting and hungering for more of you. And just like that anointing oil, that there would be something that permanently changes in our life tonight. Lord Jesus, we love you. We consecrate ourselves to you, to your most sacred heart, and to your mother's immaculate heart. We pray all of this in Jesus'
1: name.
0: Folks, you've been tuned into Ignite Radio Live. We are so blessed that you are with us tonight. If you want to find out more about our movement, please go to ilovemyfamily.us. We're about more fully discovering, proclaiming, living and building the kingdom. If you want to hear some past very impactful episodes and podcasts, go to igniteradiolive.com live.com until next time. God bless you.